Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Nearly a year ago, I interviewed Pastor Jeff Dibel from Sydney, Australia, about his journey of discovering the genuine Jesus of the first century. At the close of that interview, he mentioned that he had written a book that makes a biblical case for his understanding of the Christ we find in the scriptures, as opposed to the Christ we find in Christian tradition. Well, I'm happy to say that this book is now available, published by Living Hope International Ministries. In what follows, I asked Dibel about the content, purpose, and tone of the book. Here now is episode 408, Christ Before Creed's book with Jeff Dibel. Well, welcome Jeff Dibel to Restitutio. So glad to have you back on the show today. Well, thank you, Sean. It's always a pleasure to be with you too. Now, our last time together, we were talking about your life story and what you had been through in your quest to discover the biblical Jesus, the Jesus before uh, church tradition got a hold of him. And mm-hmm. you, at the very end of that interview, mentioned a book that you were writing or had written. And I'm excited to say that that book is now a reality. So let's <laughs> let's talk about the book. What inspired you to write this book, Christ Before Creeds? Yeah, Sean. Um, well, when I said book in our last interview, it was a very rough draft manuscript, and it's uh, taken quite a journey since then. But uh, there was quite a backstory uh, that people can listen to from that last interview. Uh, but it ended with me as senior pastor of my church having to step down or, or choosing to step down. And in that process, it all happened very quickly. There was no real opportunity to be able to explain to the members of my church uh, my position, my doctrinal uh, sort of position and why I had come to that place. And there was a lot of curiosity. People were asking me, what's this all about? And so really I I sat down and wrote a little bit cathartically, but I wanted to put into words my position and why I had come to that place and wanted to present it in a way that was kind of understandable and clear to just the average person in the pew um, so that I could say, look, you know, if you want to understand more, read this. So it was to give an explanation for why you thought what you thought in a way that regular people could understand. You didn't need a a degree from a theology school to follow your reasoning on this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was to make it accessible, to try to make it fairly, you know, clear, something that can be quite complex and confusing. Uh, So I wanted to try to present it in a way that was... Mm -hmm you know, a bit understandable just to, yeah, the average person in the pew. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about the writing process. What were some of the ideas you grappled with as you wrote the book? Well, one of the things that I grappled with was that this was a big issue for me. This was really important. It kind of turned my theological world upside down. And I mean, there was a lot of implications 
in terms of my ministry, my family. And um, so this was a big deal for me, but I realised that it's not a big deal for many people. I mean, most Christians either are happy to accept what they've been taught and orthodoxy as they understand it in terms of Jesus, um, in terms of how they understand God. And it's either that they're happy to accept it or that it's just so confusing and so complicated and so confronting that they just don't want to go there. So the first thing I had to realise is that, you know, people aren't necessarily nearly as motivated as, as I am in terms of trying to explore and, and understand this issue. So that was the first thing. And, and another thing I, I really grappled with, and, and in fact, to be honest, uh, I, I was quite conflicted about the book because I, I've seen the damage that debate and discussion around this issue can cause. I mean, I saw my own church of 300 or so members just unravel and and implode. Uh, that wasn't all because of the issue. It was more about how it was handled. But um, I've seen the difficulty it can cause for people in their individual faith. It causes a crisis within them. I, I've seen dis, you know disunity, division, dissension within the church. I guess the other thing, Sean, is that people can get obsessed and can fixate on this. And so that becomes something that distracts them and distracts the church from what we really should be on about. So we can so easily lose the plot. We, we so really easily kind of get away from our core business, you know, the mission of the church, uh, the cause of Christ, the kingdom of God, and, and we just get distracted in, into these kind of debates. That certainly happened in the fourth and fifth centuries, you know, where this was the bone of contention. Uh, there was so much disunity caused. There was so much dishonouring of Christ. And, and so I recognised all of that. So I wanted to write the book in a way that tried to circumvent or, or get around that. I tried to write a book that wouldn't cause division but rather build bridges and to try to promote unity rather than disunity, try to, to write in a way that would not cause so much difficulty but rather advance the cause of Christ. Yeah, so what I hear you saying is that you're, you're a healer, not somebody that's looking to do damage to the body of Christ. You want to heal the body of Christ, I, I, and you want to build, not tear down. But it's, yeah. there is a component here that uh, requires, uh, if I could use the analogy of a broken bone, that uh, if you have a broken bone, like you break your arm, and then you let it heal naturally without setting it first, now, you know, you have an arm, it still exists, it's uh, very weak, it may hurt, throb, or not be able to do what it used to be able to do, uh, but Really, the only way to fix that is to then break it again, to, to do that surgery on the bone and then set it straight, and then it will heal and it will be even better than it was before. Uh, and that analogy just came to mind while you were speaking there because there, there is a trauma that you must go through to redefine something this important. 
like Jesus, like who is Jesus is a big question, yes, right? Yes. So yeah. it, it is very much like breaking a bone that uh, you believe, and I agree with you, was not set correctly in the fourth century when the church went into this whole subject very deeply and uh, really has floundered uh, as a result of this in relating to Jesus and understanding his words and his teachings. I, I hear what you're saying. You're, you, you realize that people are potentially going to be upset by the book, but it's not intended to divide. It's not intended to tear down. It's, it's intended to help the body of Christ to restore back to what it was originally. Now, many of us already have other One God books uh, similar to this on our bookshelves. Uh, I've got a bunch on my bookshelf. Why do you think we need another one on who the genuine Jesus is? What What is uh, unique, I guess, about your approach and what you have done here that uh, warrants those of us who are already with you doctrinally? Why should we buy yeah. this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, with uh, with all of the books on your shelf, Sean, you you probably wouldn't buy my book for its theological content. Uh, you've probably got more than enough theological content, you know, in in your library and and many others in their libraries. Um, although I do think I state some things a bit more succinctly than in most books, and I do think I make a few unique theological points but it wouldn't be for the theological content i think it'd be a couple of reasons why this would be a very valuable and useful addition uh, first of all because of the intended audience as i said this is not uh, an academic treatise you know i do believe it does does have biblical and theological integrity but it's not meant for an academic audience it's really aimed at just, you know, the average person in the pew, some who have a fairly reasonable biblical knowledge, but many have just a very basic knowledge. So it doesn't make a lot of assumptions that many books do. So it's the kind of book that you can, you know, give to someone who's maybe interested or, the, you know, the, the conversation crops up and, and you say, hey, look, I've got a book that I think would be really helpful. So this would be a good introductory book. That would really, I think, help people to begin the journey uh, who were seeking. That's it. And, and secondly, I think the style. As I said, I didn't write the book to win the argument or to win an argument. It was more to, to impart awareness and understanding. Uh, because I think for me, at least, um, it's just that I was brought up in a Trinitarian sort of um, teaching. And I was totally unaware of the whole other side of, an, of the argument. There's a whole lot of information I just have been totally unaware of. Uh, so it's to really impart awareness and information. It's to, as I said, to build bridges and to start a conversation. It's really to try to help people become curious and begin a journey of exploration. And I, I think that's a valuable niche behind this, this particular approach you have. Uh, the book itself is also short, which lends itself to <laughs> giving it to people and to using it as an evangelism tool. And, you know, the tone of the book in particular is very friendly. 
which is great. Sometimes the tone of the book is, is so excessively neutral and scientific almost that uh, it's just uh, doesn't really grab your attention. And other times the tone of a book like this will be so combative that uh, there'll be just no chance anyone would ever want to read it through. Uh, so I, I, I commend you on your tone. I also was, was thinking about this cover uh, design here and uh, this, uh, this very Middle Eastern-looking Jesus. Uh, so many times we see a Jesus picture, and it's a, a, a little bit too European. And uh, so I was just going to ask you about this uh, design and this picture here, where you've got half of the face covered with words. Could you share a little bit about that and where, where you're coming from and what this uh, cover represents? Yeah, sure, Sean. And yeah, look, you're right. I mean, the book is intentionally a short book. It is, yeah, not adversarial or polemic in style. It is very much a conversational style. Yeah, but in terms of the cover, it is meant to be something that kind of grabs people's attention. It's a little bit arresting and and symbolically shows that, you know, there is a, a human Jesus behind all of the the verbiage and the philosophical interpretations that kind of cloud who he is. So those are those all those words on the right side of the cover, these other interpretations <laughs> that overshadow Yes. They separate us from the true Jesus. Yes. Yeah. And the guy on the on the cover actually, his name's Ali. You know, he has a um, an Islamic sort of agnostic background Mm -hmm. and um, I got to know him through my son's church and we we have a great friendship and relationship but he was on a spiritual journey and um, he he allowed me to take his photo for the cover of the book. (laughs) So you actually know this guy, wow. (laughs) Yeah, I do and his wife became a Christian about three weeks prior to that and he committed his life to Christ two days after that photo. Wow. Wow. So uh, the, yeah. bo- the book is already winning converts, even when they don't read it. They just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's just That's a tremendous right. story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Now, uh, let's talk about your background a little bit as a, a minister within the Churches of Christ, also called the Stone Campbell Movement or Restoration Movement. This is a movement begun by Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell. And, uh, you know, I myself have read uh, Barton Stone's autobiography, which I, which I highly recommend. It's a great book. But there is actually a part in that book where Stone talks about how nervous he was about his ordination because he didn't really understand or believe in the Trinity. And he confessed his, uh, his reservations to one of the leaders there, and the leader said, oh, don't worry, we're not going to ask you any questions about that. You'll, you'll be fine. <laughs> it's kind of an arresting moment in the book. Um, and uh, by, by all accounts, uh, neither Stone nor Campbell uh, were, quote-unquote, orthodox in their Christologies and their view of Christ and the, and the Trinity and so on. And, uh, you know, there are these other movements that came out in the 19th century from America, too, with uh, other founders of One God groups, like the Christadelphians with John Thomas and the Church of God with uh, Joseph Marsh and Benjamin Wilson and, and some of these others. So my question is, wh- what do you think is so common throughout the Church of Christ's history as far as 
this tendency to ask this question and and to say, well, maybe maybe we got this wrong, you know, because it's just sort of like in the water from right from the beginning. Mm. Yeah, well, I I think it's just the the ethos or the, the the foundational principles of that movement that naturally uh, allow people the freedom to just get back to the scriptures, just to to get back to basic, essential, uncluttered Christianity based on the authority of the scriptures alone. So um, it just gives you that freedom to explore and come to your own opinions. And also it's a tradition that tries to uh, take away the traditions of the church and just get back to the basics, uh, which I think, you know, is a really great place to be at. And, and we had catch cries like no creed but Christ, you know, which meant that, sure, people can have their opinions and their formulations, their conclusions as they read the scriptures, but let's not make that binding on other people. Let's allow people freedom to come to their own individual conclusions, which may be very different. Uh, and there was another catch cry that was in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things, love. In other words, look, there are some non-essentials that we, we hold to as foundational, but outside of those, we can allow people to come to their own individual uh, conclusions and still remain united. We don't have to divide over just different opinions on all those non-essential issues. Because at the time, the church was splintering over every different opinion. And uh, they said, no, that's, that's not what, what Jesus wanted for the church. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that, that heritage. And as somebody who didn't grow up in the movement, just the, the mindset of the movement is something that's really grabbed me. And uh, I do self-identify as a restorationist. And, of course, my podcast uh, that we're on, we're on right now is uh, just the Latin word for restoration. Uh, the English word for restoration was already taken. So uh, what was I going to do? Uh, so I picked, I picked the Latin word. Uh, I think the Greek word was a little bit difficult to pronounce. So uh, we went with Latin. And uh, so that's where Restitutio came from. But it's, it's really the same mindset, and it's, and it's not only Churches of Christ and, and uh, this ministry here, but lots of different Christian ministries over the centuries have said this. They've said, mm. let's get back to the Bible. Let's get back mm. to the time before tradition developed to, into the complexities that we see today. And yes. uh, to a large degree, that's what Martin Luther was doing, right? And uh, so this is very much, uh, I think, within the mainstream of Christianity, this impulse that some of us have to say, well, mm-hmm. maybe we're off track. Let's, let's, go and, let, let's go and see. And, uh, of course, it's not hard to go and see because we do have the Bible so well-preserved over so many centuries that we can, we can peer right into the first centuries. It's just miraculous. It's just like looking yeah. through a window into that period of time. And yeah. uh, the question is, what do we see there? Who is the Jesus that we encounter there? It doesn't look like the stained-glass Jesus of so many churches today. But uh, I, I did really appreciate how you concluded your book. I just read from the, the final pages here. You wrote, 
My plea is to rediscover the Jesus of the Bible, to remove the overlays of subsequent Greek philosophical thinking and ecclesiological traditions that deified and mystified him, to return to a more genuine and Jewish Jesus, a more historic, holistic, and human Jesus, a less creedal and more credible Jesus as truly portrayed in the scriptures. Uh, so that's, that's the project, right? I mean, if you, if you do that and you peel back those layers of tradition, you go back to that Jewish, that Jesus of the scriptures, then that's, that is the, the real Jesus. There are people who are going to disagree with you on this. The tendency is that Trinitarians and non-Trinitarians will talk past each other. Uh, mm. How does this book help Christians engage with each other in a more meaningful way? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, um, Sean. You know, that, that we often talk past each other. And um, I think we need to realise that Trinitarians, many of them, will remain Trinitarians irrespective of what arguments we might make. And as valid as we think that they are, for all sorts of reasons, many Trinitarians will not change their views um, for lots of reasons. And, of course, many um, biblical Unitarians will not change their mind because they've come to those convictions as they've read the Scriptures. And so the question is, you know, what do you do with that? You know, and this book seeks not sort of an us versus them mentality, but let's, once again, let's get back to the basics. Uh, Let's get back to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, which Jesus said the Father had revealed to him and would be the foundation of the church. So we can agree on that. You know, we might differ on some other things, but the foundation remains the same. And so let's walk hand in hand, even if we don't see eye to eye. Let's talk about this with respect and humility. And, you know, even if we can't come to the same conclusion, let's at least you know, deal with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ based on that foundation. Yeah, I really appreciate the H word there, humility. Us being willing to say we could be wrong. To me, that's, that's intellectual humility. That's doctrinal humility. You know, if we're going if, if we to, if we desire someone else to change their beliefs and we're not willing to change our beliefs, there's a there's a hypocrisy there, right? There's a, a double standard where I oh I'm right and you must change. Mm. Well, who's to say that you, that I'm the one that's right? I could be the one that's wrong, and the other person could be right. And I think if we have that, if we can model that, which I think the book does, it models this willingness to change. Because I mean, you've lost so much in the in the in the process of pursuing the Christ who is before creeds, uh, both in priority and in time. You know that. You've demonstrated a humility to change, a willingness to change. And, uh, you know, that really does come through in the book, although you have to read towards the end uh, to find out a little bit about your <laughs> your personal story. Uh, I think you kind of wanted to save that till later in the book. But uh, let me ask you this. Do you have a, a favorite section in the book that uh, you particularly enjoyed or you thought came out really well? Oh, that's... Um a little bit like uh, asking, you know, a kid what's his favourite chocolate, I think, Sean. Um, <laughs> I like different parts of the book because of what it each achieves. I think the first 
you know, three or four chapters help deal with people's assumptions and prejudices. It deals with some of the attitudinal stuff that many books don't. And it helps in that process, I think, of deconstruction that you mentioned about breaking the bones so it can mend. It just helps to deconstruct some things, hopefully so then people become a little bit more open uh, and teachable for another point of view. So I like the first chapters for that reason. And then I like the next couple of chapters because it puts in a fairly clear and concise way, I think, what the book actually teaches about who Jesus is in a way that's not theological, in a way that's not philosophical, but more just uh, based on biblical exegesis. And then the last chapter is seeking uh, a conciliatory approach and saying, okay, whatever may be the conclusions that you have come to, given the evidence that's been presented, uh, wherever you may end up, what's the way forward? Whether you're convinced or not convinced or still wanting to explore further, you know, how do we still continue the conversation and continue the journey in a way that's going to be helpful? So, look, I, I'm, I'm happy with the whole book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to pick out that's the right answer ding 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 <laughs> if you said well i just like chapter three the rest is just kind of boring you know then uh we, <laughs> we might have reason to question it but uh yeah that sounds great i really do appreciate the spirit especially of chapter seven which i i think a lot of people uh will look at your first six chapters who have already come to see this understanding and they will say well all right, yeah, you know, maybe you put it a little differently, but you're, you're basically saying the same thing. And then they'll get to chapter 7, and I think they will receive a challenge there because you really do challenge both sides. You challenge non-Trinitarians. You challenge Trinitarians. You challenge oneness people. And, and you're saying, look, hey, guys, Christ first, right? So, like, if you believe in, in Jesus, that he's Messiah, that he died for your sins, you know, like, we're going to put that ahead of these other ideas of whether he pre-existed or not, whether he's co-equal with God, and so on, whether he has a human and divine nature, some of these other subjects that we they, the book gets into, that's going to be great. But then on the other side, for people who are not familiar with this, people who are coming from a more traditional, mainstream mindset, those early chapters really do lay such groundwork, but also in a challenging way. So I think the book is really, really good for both sides. Now, uh, talk to me about who has uh, supported the book or spoken for it as far as scholars or pastors or churches? Did you want to mention anybody there specifically? Thanks, Sean. Yeah, look, I, um, there are some people, but it's interesting that, um, you know, when you say that last chapter, which I think I'm trying to strike balance between grace and truth. We know Jesus was full of grace and truth, and I've been trying to strike that balance in this book. But I think that's been the chapter that's caused you know, the most pushback, particularly by some Unitarians who say, yeah, yeah, the arguments are great, but, you know, I think you've let the argument sort of uh, undermined a bit. But it's, it's an interesting one, sort of keeping that balance between grace and truth. I've had some feedback. Uh, the book's the manuscript's been read by a number of people, well, by yourself, Sean, and I know a number of your peers who are church leaders and um you know, even lecturers and theologians. So it's been great to get their feedback, particularly Dale Tuggy, 
gave very comprehensive feedback uh, and particularly addressed some of the, the nuances of uh, the theological debates that I, you know, probably had, had not quite grasped. So that was great. Richard Rubenstein, of course, uh, gave, you know, affirmation on the historical aspects of it. Uh, I got some just normal people, in, <laughs> if I can, you know, some average uh, Christians to read it and, and uh, also... Well, that's that, those are the people you're trying yeah, to reach, right? That's right. I wanted to make sure they could understand it and it was, it was made to them. But also I gave it to some Trinitarians, you know, who, for example, a... Um, the ex-principal of the Churches of Christ College in Australia. I uh, gave it to him and another friend of mine who's solidly Trinitarian and just wanted to make sure that I had represented them okay and that, you know, just to get their feedback as well. And, um, yeah, so it's had a, a variety of – it's been road tested, I guess, Sean, and um, so that's yeah. been good. You know what I what I love about that is being involved with this book. How how long have we been working on this, Jeff? It's been a fair while. It, it took a long time to not the the publishing side of it, not the writing side, but the publishing, oh, publishing side. side. When did we start on this? It was like a yeah, year ago? Yeah, I'd say so. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I've been involved on the publishing side of this. Uh, of course, the fabulous Anna Brown has uh, done the lion's share of of the leading of this team to get it done. But what, what I appreciate about it, Jeff, is, is that uh, you're, you're not a, a solo act. You're not one of these mavericks that's out there that uh, just is convinced that God's speaking in your ear and nobody else knows anything, and you're going you're gonna to straighten everything out. You're, you're, you're much more of a community-minded man than that. And that's really come through in this in this process. That it, there has been a lot of feedback, and 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 I encourage you, you who are listening to this, you would get the book. If you're somebody who believes in the Trinity or somebody who believes in oneness theology, that you would start from the beginning. But if you're somebody that already believes that uh, the Father is the only true God and that Jesus is his human Messiah, skip to chapter seven and see <laughs> see what you think, because. Uh, you know that's that's the uh, the juicy part I think that demands our attention. You know, and the, and that's a real big question for the movement in general, Jeff. What kind of movement are we all going to be a part of? Is it going to be the kind of movement that pounds the pulpit and says, you know, if you don't believe this, you're going to hell, or is it going to be more the style of Jesus, who uh, you know was no pushover, but at the same time was easy to entreat. Sinners wanted to have them over for dinner. Look, if you're just going to shout and yell at people and tell them they're doomed, nobody's going to invite you over for dinner, right? Uh, or at least not twice. <laughs> Maybe just once. But uh, I, do, uh, I do really think uh, that you struck that balance between grace and truth well there in Chapter 7, and uh, that we can, we can extend Christian love to people. And, and these others who have supported the book and who have endorsed it from so many different groups, from Asians to Americans to Australians, uh, others, that uh, there would be the support really indicates that I think you're on to something here. Now, let's, let's talk about evangelism. Uh, in your book, you point out some of the challenges the Trinity idea poses for evangelism. Talk a little bit more about that. What problems would we face if we did have a Trinitarian view of Jesus? Yeah, well, I think there's particularly two groups that um, it causes some difficulty for. Number one is people who have a strong monotheistic faith 
such as uh, Jewish or Islamic adherence, for them the Trinity is a real stumbling block because even though Christians, Trinitarian, you know, even though Trinitarians say, well, we, it's only one God, that doesn't really kind of ring true for people who are monotheistic. They can't get their head around, well, there's actually three persons in this one God, so isn't that just tritheism in denial? That's not real monotheism. Um, so it causes that initial barrier for monotheistic uh, believers, such as Jews and, and Islamic people. Uh, and then secondly, I think it causes also some stumbling blocks for people who don't have a church background, who may be agnostic or just, you know, undecided about things, and, and they have a fairly rationalistic approach. You know, if Christianity is valid, it needs to make sense. And, and because the Trinity is basically a bit of a contradiction, it doesn't really make sense, then that in itself uh, is an issue. I've got a, you know, a member of my extended family who, who just finds that it just doesn't make sense and therefore, you know, it's just a bit of an unnecessary and unfortunate barrier that doesn't need to be there in, in our evangelism. I think it, it just creates unfortunate barriers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I was thinking about uh, the, the saying, if you try to understand the Trinity, you lose your mind. If you don't believe the Trinity, you lose your soul. And uh, just how uh, this is so at odds with what we see elsewhere in, in Scripture, mm-hmm. <laughs> that there's not this uh, central paradox or contradiction, uh, whatever you want to call it, at the heart of everything that we have to sort of like just mentally cross our eyes and say, ah, oh, I don't know. You know, Jesus doesn't t- talk to people like that. He doesn't say, hey, it's, it's so far beyond you, you just got to trust me. No, he says... Mm-hmm. Look at my words, look at my works, and believe because of what you see, of what you hear. And, uh, you know, believe that the Father has sent him. You know, it's interesting, Jesus never said, you must believe in the Trinity. Um, Or the uh, the apostles, upon reflecting uh, on what Jesus had done and Jesus' exalted role at the right hand of God, there's no statement I I can find in Paul's epistles where he says, you you must believe in the Trinity. I do see that in the later fourth century, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know why? Why did it take three hundred years? You know that's a good question. Mm-hmm. You know we need to get back to the Christ before uh, the creeds. Um, what, what about the the style? You know it seemed like you went for a, uh, a simpler style of writing, and uh, you know based on that, probably not so much based on that one sentence I read where you used the word ecclesiological, uh, but generally speaking, you, uh, you, you really do approach it from a very simple, easy-to-understand to approach, and that's actually not very common for this topic, because even just to describe the idea of the Trinity requires so much philosophical terminology, mm-hmm. like uh, the, the whole idea of usia mm-hmm. and homoousia, and uh, you know the hypostasis and these uh, the hypostatic union. <laughs> it goes on and on. You know the the procession of the spirit and the eternal generation of the son. You know there's just so many of these uh, different phrases and ideas. Really, mm-hmm. how did you try to keep your readers from getting too bogged down with uh, with those kinds of you know nerdy details? You know that's um, that was one of the biggest struggles in writing um, because. It's so difficult to know how much 
detail to get into and it's it's very easy to kind of get burrowed down into some of that theological debating stuff that so I, I, I thought to try to just have a bit more of an overview, just kind of hitting the salient points of both the history and the theology and try to resist getting bogged down into detail there. So that was one thing that I did, and, and it was a struggle because it's so easy. You know, it's trying to strike the balance. You, don't, you need to give enough information for people to be able to appreciate what you're saying and to deal with some of the things but then not get too technical uh, so what I did was some of the more technical arguments and some of the some of the, the passages that are very difficult to deal with in a cursory sort of way uh, I did touch upon them in the main text but I put a lot of that material into an appendix at the end of the book so that if people did want to get into some more detail and to explore further into some of those passages, then they could, uh, they could do that later. And the other thing I did is that I invited people to engage with the book at um, three different levels, you know. If they just wanted to kind of get to, um, they, they could review it. They could just kind of, if they just wanted to get to the, the bottom line, so to speak, and just get to the conclusions and the summation, then I put a summary at the end of each chapter and said, just read the summary for the first five chapters and then all of chapter six and all of chapter seven and you'll basically get the guts of the book. Or you can read the whole thing through from start to finish so you get to understand the reasoning for the conclusions and then also there are footnotes and there's the appendix and there's further resources at the end if you want to research it further. So um, that's kind of how I got around it. Very good. Of course, the book is available on Amazon, both in Australia and the United States. So that's good. But uh, actually, I just uh, I just saw a bloke from who lives in Northern Ireland just got his copy. So it, I think it's available in Europe as well. So that's good news for for the book. Publishing has come such a long way in the last uh, even five years. Uh, actually, when we started this project, Amazon was not yet publishing in Australia. We were going to work through a different company. Halfway through, Amazon opened a printer in Australia. So is that is that not God's providence on this project, you know, that uh, this book needed to get printed and needed to get accessible to English readers all over the world? You know, uh, I think this is really going to have such an such an impact. And of course, there's the Kindle version for you e-reader types that if you prefer that, you can get the Kindle version. But let me uh, just conclude here, Jeff, as we're winding down our conversation. What's next for you? Uh, you've written this book. You, you've uh, done so much here. Uh, and I think we'll be promoting this. But like, what, what's, what's on the horizon for you? Any ideas? Um, yeah. Um, by the way, um, thanks for saying bloke. <laughs> Did you throw that in for my sake? <laughs> well, when uh, speaking to an Australian, you try to, you know, speak a, a little down under. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, and the Australians will appreciate it. Um, yeah, good question, Sean. Um, I don't really know exactly what's ahead for me. As, as you know, there'll be a web page that will uh, be linked to the book, and um, I might use that and also blog and other things to um, continue. Uh, conversing and talking with people who have questions or who who uh, think that I've got it wrong somewhere. I'm more than happy for people to 
you know, feedback to me. And, and so I'm happy to continue the conversation that the book will generate in that format. But also I'd like to go beyond that. I, I don't want to be seen as just kind of a, a one-issue, single-issue, one-dimensional sort of guy. Sean, I'm more of a, I'm not, I'm not a theologian. I'm, I'm a pastor, really, at heart. And um, for me, sure, I'm happy to discuss and, you know, and debate about Jesus. But for me, that's really just a step towards knowing and understanding who Jesus really is so that we can follow him and so that ultimately we, be, we can become more like him. And uh, that's really my heart. So I'd like to maybe, you know, extend beyond just and pursue that, that aspect of it as well. And, and you are currently pastoring a church, right? Yeah, pastoring a church. Plus also I'm working part-time as, as a chaplain in the Defence Force, the Australian Defence Force. Well, thanks so much for speaking with me today. I'm real excited about Christ Before Crees, excited to see people reading this. To be honest, I'm much more excited to see people who disagree with me reading this book than people that agree with me reading this book. Because I think it, it, it really does have the potential to maybe not change somebody's mind instantly, but raise the right questions. You know, because anybody that changes their mind instantly, they probably didn't have a strong view. But, you know, if you raise the right questions, then the person will start doing the research. They'll go to the websites, they'll go to the library, they'll go to Amazon, they'll, they'll get the books, they'll go to the Facebook groups, the forums, or whatever kind of research they do, they talk to their, you know, scholarly friends. And, and then once the right questions are in mind, that can really help to get somebody started on a, a, a quest, like you got started on a quest. Mm-hmm. So I really uh, just appreciate you uh, doing this book, and I uh, just want to thank you for your time in coming on Restitutio today. And thank you, Sean. It's always a pleasure. And can I just also say a very big thank you because um, you picked up that comment in the last podcast and you read it and, uh, and you believed in the, uh, in the importance of the book and you've supported it personally. And so I just want to say a very big thank you to yourself as well. Well, thank you. Well, thanks everyone for listening to the end of this interview. You can get Christ Before Creeds on Amazon.com in the U.S. and Amazon.com.au in Australia. It's also available in other markets that have Amazon access, Asia, Europe, and so on, Africa. And I encourage you that if you have already gotten this book, as I know a number of people already have, or if you plan on getting it, please do write a review Uh, in Amazon so that other people can be able to find it, and that really does help boost it in search results, along with social media engagement. So if you see any posts about this book online, please feel free to share it with people. I think it really is important that we support our brother in Christ here, Jeff Dibel, as he does seek to reach out to others with this important truth. And I think this book does it in a really helpful and friendly manner that could really help spread this truth to others. If you'd like to leave feedback on this episode, uh, you can come on to restitutio.org. It's like the word restitution with no N, dot O-R-G, uh, and look for episode 408, Christ Before Creed's book. Also, if you haven't yet listened to Jeff's backstory, 
Check out episode 366, Who Was Christ Before the Creeds with Jeff Dibel. I recorded that back in November 2020. And if you want to go even farther back than that and hear the backstory on his brother Greg Dibel, take a look at the episode They Never Told Me This in Church back from December of 2018. Uh, so uh, lots lots to listen to there if you're interested in either of the Dibel brothers and what God is doing in Australia, in this family. I encourage you to take a listen to those. Also, we got some new reviews. Actually, a number of these had come in a while back in the year, and I, w- I was not getting reports on on reviews made outside of the United States. So I've got a few to read out. Sorry that these are a little bit delayed, but uh, Vinny writes in from Canada saying, very good show, enjoy listening to the show, and gives it a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. Joe, Joe writes in, uh, this is a special podcast that intellectually curious Christians should listen to. Also gives it a five-star rating. And then someone named B7 wrote in under the title A Blessing and said, so glad I found this podcast brilliant, and that's from Australia. So uh, I do know that we have a number of listeners in English-speaking countries around the world outside of the United States. We love that you listen to the show. We're so thankful to have you with us, and uh, I especially think this episode is a good one to bring out the fact that Rest Studio is listened to a lot in Australia and in Canada as well as the United States and other other English-speaking countries, certainly the motherland of the, the language itself, England. I know I've had some correspondence with some, some English people uh, out that way. And then there are people who would listen from other countries around the world. But uh, thanks so much for writing in these reviews. If you have been thinking about, man, I, maybe I should write a review for Rest Studio. Hey, that would be great. Go ahead and write it in your podcast app. Write it in Apple Podcasts. Write it in Stitcher. Wherever you have access to write a review, it would be great to uh, get to raise awareness. So thanks so much for these three reviews. And for all of you who have been supporting Restitudio, really appreciate it. And, and if you would like to support us, you can do that at restitudio.org. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.